I guess it was about 10 years ago that I sat in a sanctuary, an old uh, sanctuary with about 50 other men and women. And we sat there after the songs were over and a guest speaker got up to preach. She was in her 40s, uh, tall and slender and very well-spoken, very well-educated, sophisticated, um, and had a big heart. Her name was Lynn. She was a friend of mine. She came to speak to us that day, and, and before she started her sermon, she laid across the pulpit podium thing a pink uh, nursery blanket deal, right? Hers was nicer than this. It was like crocheted, right, by hand. And she started her sermon by, by sharing the story of her childhood and really nice stories about her mom and her dad. And she said, do y'all remember, in the sweetest voice, y'all remember when your mommy and daddy used to tuck you in at night? She said, do y'all remember what it was like to be wrapped in their love? Do you remember what it was like to feel their butterfly kisses before you go to sleep in your bed when you were a child? And she shared some specifics about what her mom would do for her, right? So she said, my mommy would wrap me in a pink blanket like this one, and she would kiss my forehead, and she would read me goodnight moon, and then she would tell me she loved me, and I would go to sleep as she watched me sleep. And she said to us sitting there in the congregation, she said, how many of you remember what that felt like? And she waited for people to to dialogue with her, right? Like she wanted answers from the congregation, but nobody said anything. And the question kind of fell flat. And Lynn didn't know what to do in that moment because she expected people to answer. And so she said, here's what we're gonna do. I'd like you guys for the next 10 minutes to break off into small groups of three, four, or five people, which everyone loves to do. And no, I'm not going to make you do that, so don't worry. Some of y'all are like, I'll give my seat up right now. Like, I, anyway, I, I get it, right? But she wanted us to share our favorite memories about our moms and being tucked into bed at night. Because she wanted to talk about how God is like that with us, right? Gives us that security. But it just really fell flat. And, you know, Lynn had the best of intentions. Lynn had a big heart. And that's why I invited her to speak. This was my church she was speaking at. But I probably, in retrospect, could have done a little more to prepare her for the audience she was speaking to that day. Because uh, the audience she spoke to was the men and women that gathered for our homeless ministry at the church I pastored at the time. And they were waiting for chapel to be over so they could go to the soup kitchen ministry and, and eat downstairs. They were hungry. These were the men that sleep under the bridge at night. These were the women that walk the streets and work the streets at night. And so uh, it wasn't exactly uh, Lynn's target with the message that she shared. Now, I, I'm not saying that those 50 people all had terrible parents. There were some good stories that were shared that day, but these guys, many of them were like hardcore addicts. These guys, many of them had severe like mental illness issues. Many of them 
experience things in childhood that no child should experience. The kind of abandonment and abuse, the kinds of, you know, uh, stories of men coming in and out of their lives. Just awful things. And people like Lynn and me, we had the kind of childhood you enjoy. But most of those 50 people sitting in that sanctuary that day had the kind of childhood you survive. And so as Lynn spoke of pink blankies and butterfly kisses, it wasn't connecting. And as she broke us off into small groups, I was visibly shaking, trembling, right? Like what's about to be said? As I looked around at the group of guys I was with, I was like, we don't probably have a lot in common about you know, our childhood and how we were tucked in at night. There was Big Joe, for example, they called him Big Joe. Six foot seven, enormous guy, African-American guy. One of his eyes was brown, the other was bright blue. Big Joe, uh, <laughs> with a smile on his face, said, I don't think nobody ever gave me no pink blankie. <laughs> there was Larry. Larry was one of the first people to join the church we started there. Larry had recently gotten out of the pen where he spent 15 years for selling crack. And Larry had seven tattoos on his arm that he had given himself on the inside, right, uh, of prison. So uh, and Larry said something like, what the blank is goodnight moon. And uh, <laughs> he did not. He did not say blank. <laughs> so uh, the service ended, and I pulled Lynn aside. I knew she'd be struggling, and she just was a little shell-shocked. She said, I don't know what happened. I didn't feel like I connected with these people. And I, I just told her some of the things that the guys and women in, this, in that room had been through as children, and she was so shocked, like she immediately was moved to tears because it was such a shock to her that any child these days would have their innocence ripped from them at such a young age. Any child this age would endure such horrific childhoods like many of the people in that room did. It just had not occurred to her because of the bubble that she kind of grew up in, which is not dissimilar to the bubble many of us probably uh, grew up in. About, about um, 18 months ago, uh, we decided to, to name this church. I sat down uh, with, a, with a young graphic artist here in Houston, and I asked her just about herself. I was trying to get something free out of her, because that's, that's what I do best, is get free things from people. And I wanted her to design our first logo. And the subject of her faith came up, and she mentioned to me that she was raised Catholic, but that she was now an atheist. And I said, why in the world did you become an atheist? And she said, because I started reading the Bible for myself. And the God I found there looked like a monster to me. And um, it occurred to me then just how important it is a conversation like today is, and a question like today's. Why is there so much violence in the Bible? It is a legitimate question, you guys. We need to ask this question. We need to struggle with this question because people like that graphic artist are. They're all over Houston, right? This is one of the main arguments against the faith we claim to be true, right? This question right here. But I also want to add the caveat that most of the people 
that are so deeply troubled by violence in the Bible tend to be and sound a little bit like Lynn holding her pink blankie in front of a room full of survivors. So I still, uh, you know, I, I think it's important that we acknowledge uh, the question that, that my graphic artist friend uh, raised, right? Why does God seem like a monster in the Bible? Because we cannot ignore the fact that there's some horrific stuff in this book. Really, really horrific stuff. I don't know if you've explored it for yourself, but there's some really disturbing passages that read in a vacuum can be used to argue against the faith we celebrate, right? Some of it is, uh, is disturbing in a bizarre way, right? So there's stories like the one of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings where Elisha is, is walking down the street, right? And there the prophet Elisha went up to Bethel. He's walking along the road. Some boys came out of the town and made fun of him. Get out of here, baldy. They said, I guess Elisha had some yeah, male pattern baldness happening. And they said, get out of here, baldy. And he turned around, looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. I have no idea what to do with this. I don't know what to say to my graphic designer friend about this, right? Other than just be nice to bald guys. Because you just never know. You never know when they're, when they're going to hit their limit. You know what I'm saying? Like, the struggle is real. Steve Beagle, amen? Amen. The struggle is real. Amen. We love, we love bald guys. Y'all don't, uh, don't summon any bears to come and maul us, please. All right, good. Thank you. I mean, there's always like contextual explanations and things you can do to make sense of this, but on the surface of it, I, I don't know what to do with the Bible sometimes. And there's other like crazy rules like in Deuteronomy where it talks about two guys get in a fight and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from the assailant and she reaches out and seizes him by his private parts. You shall cut off her hand and show her no pity. I don't get it. She seems cool. Like she seems like the kind of woman you want in your corner. I gave my wife permission to do whatever it takes to defend me when I'm in a fight because my next fight will be my first. It's okay. You do whatever you want, right? So another one of those things where if you really dig into context, you might be able to make sense of this, but man, it just seems indefensible on the surface of it, right? It doesn't really stop there. There's, there's more, more disturbing stuff. Most of the really disturbing violence people refer to in the Bible comes from the battles Joshua fought, fought and the, the, the ones that came in the aftermath of like Jericho. You know that song we sang as kids, Joshua fit the battle? It's fun as kids and then you wake up and one day and you're an adult and you go, holy cow, what did Joshua do? Like, who was under those walls? You know what I mean? Like it, 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 it occurs to you that that was a war. There were casualties. And a lot of the stuff people find really disturbing in the Old Testament comes from Joshua and Judges, which was this time we think about 3,000 years ago when uh, the Israelites were, uh, you know, they had left their life as slaves in Egypt and they were now looking for a place uh, to settle. Uh, and God led them to Canaan. And Canaan was not a nation state. It was a region. It was a region uh, that was known, frankly, during that time for 
its uh, brutality. And uh, in, in Joshua's case, we have stories like the one in Jericho and then the string of victories that followed in Joshua 10, for example, where, where we find this passage where it says, uh, where it says, that day Joshua took Makeda, which was a, a, a village, actually a military fort, a garrison. And Joshua put the city and its king to the sword and totally destroyed everyone in it. We have this line, he left no survivors. And he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho, which meant he killed him publicly, left him on display until sundown, and then took him down and buried him to send a message. And then Joshua and all Israel with him moved on from Makeda and to Libna and attacked it. And the Lord also gave that city and its king into Israel's hand and the city and everyone in it, Joshua put to the sword, he left no survivors. And same thing, right? So this is disturbing enough in itself, but then it, it's a little more disturbing if you really read and understand that Joshua is following orders here. The orders Joshua is following come straight from God in the book of Deuteronomy before they go into Jericho and the other cities of Canaan. God says, go in there, take out those garrisons, leave no survivors. God tells Joshua to do this. And that's where people start to get really turned off of the Christian Bible. When we talk about this God of ours, like what kind of a God tells people to do that, how can we possibly make sense of passages like that, right? That's what we're dealing with today. In my experience, people do one of two things with this stuff in the Bible, the most disturbing parts of the Bible. There's two kinds of Christians, I find. The first kind of Christian is kind of like the absolutist I mentioned last Sunday. For those of you who weren't here, this is the kind of Christian that goes, well, whatever it says, God said it, and I believe it. Now y'all just got to deal with it. You know, like that kind of, there's my God and he can do what he wants. He can kill who he wants and we don't have to answer for him. Like, I don't know why I say that in a Southern accent, but most, <laughs> most absolutists seem to have that. Anyway, so the, 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 the thing is that brand of Christian thought, while I am, I'm respectful enough to sit and have a conversation, you know, but it is, it is toxic to a lot of unbelieving people. Like that is the reason why a lot of people walk away. Because if I've got to, if in order to follow Jesus, if I've got to say the things you're saying, I don't want any part of it because it's, these are people that died in these battles, right? And these are casualties, some of them civilians, right? So it's not enough to say that. Most of us, I would say in this room are not in that category. Most of the Christians in this room right now are in another category, which is no better because we just ignore it. All the bad stuff in the Bible, we just pretend like it's not there if we don't talk about it. We don't have to deal with it. And let's just go to John 3:16, where God loves the world again. <laughs> we want all the good stuff, the fluffy stuff, the stuff of, uh, of nursery rhymes and Vacation Bible school, we want the stuff we can tell our kids and put them to bed with at night without all that disturbing, crazy stuff. We just pretend like the rest of it doesn't exist. It's a little bit like, it's a little bit like we're dating a really hot girl we've met recently and we're really into this girl, right? And she is so perfect in so many ways and she makes us feel good about ourselves and she says all the right things to us and, you know, I've heard she has a past, but it doesn't matter because she's so great. And when your friends 
come to you and they tell you, man, I think that girl you're dating is crazy. I heard her ex cheated on her and she stoned him to death. You know, uh, you know, a girl at school called her muffin top and she called a bear that ate the girl, you know, like, and you're like, no, no, not this girl. She's too good. She's great. I love her so much. She says all the things I want to hear. And so you are just blinded by your obsession that you don't listen to criticism. I don't want us to be a church like that. I don't want us to be a church that doesn't listen to criticism. And it's a little bit of a false analogy because much of the criticism people have of the Bible really can find its explanation if we do our due diligence, if we do our work and dig in and understand the book that we are reading, all right? So um, this, this kind of thinking of ignoring the bad parts of the Bible and just embracing the good, it's not new. Right, it's not new to us. We have our own little spin on it because uh, we're a pretty self-centric like uh, culture. But this thinking has been around for 1,900 years, since the very beginning of the church. There were certain Christians that had already decided we like this part of the Bible, we don't like that part. So in the year like 130, the 130s A.D., uh, there's a guy named Marcion. Marcion uh, was a very wealthy guy. Uh, he was from a very wealthy, privileged family. He grew up in the swankiest part of Rome. Rome was the capital city of the world's only superpower. And he had his own shipping business, like a shipbuilding business, and was very successful. And he just had everything you could imagine. To his credit, he was, we have records that show he was probably the most generous Christian in terms of his giving uh, to the church. He gave a lot of money to the church. Most of it was given back to him by the church. This is why. Marcion had a problem with the Bible. Marcion decided he was gonna make his own Bible. And it did not include any of the Old Testament. It included the Gospel of Luke, Book of Acts, and just a few letters from Paul. And if you paid attention last week, when I talked about how the Bible came together, you probably noticed that things really started ramping up in terms of the development of the biblical canon uh, around 130 throughout the rest of the second century. That was in response to Marcion, because Marcion was like, let's just call this the Bible, this good stuff, right? And all the other stuff, let's just forget about. Marcion actually believed that the God of the Old Testament was not the father of Jesus, was not the, guy that, the God that sent Jesus to save the world. Marcion believed that guy in the Old Testament was some other like tribal lesser deity that we need to just kind of forget about because he's bloodthirsty and ancient. And the father of Jesus is the true God. Now. It's, might sound a little crazy to you, but I'm telling you, Marcionism took off like a rocket when he introduced it because he introduced it among his peer group in Rome. The wealthy elites of Rome loved the idea of Marcionism because why not take all the best lovey-dovey stuff of Jesus and not have to deal with all the blood and gore of the Old Testament? It's perfect. It's the best of both worlds, right? And so uh, Marcionism uh, did take off uh, and it still exists today. We don't call it Marcionism anymore, but people still think this way. Some of you are probably Marcion, Marcionites um, because it may not, for you, divide along uh, Old Testament and New Testament lines. For some of you, I meet people all the time that say, I really like Jesus, but man, I just can't take Paul. 
I like Jesus. I'll take the gospels. But man, from Romans on, I'm done. You know, like, like that's not how it works. Right. But we still think in uh, in these Marcionite uh, terms sometimes uh, we want Jesus without all that Old Testament stuff. Whenever I hear uh, thoughts like this, and it's pretty often, actually, I can't help but thinking about my first visit to my in-laws in Ecuador. Ecuador is a small country in South America. Giovanna is from Ecuador. And in the year 2000, I went to visit them. The summer after I married their daughter, I went to meet them, which was awkward. And uh, they didn't speak much English. I didn't speak much Spanish at the time. And, uh, and so we just nodded and smiled a lot at each other. Um, but what was weird about the trip was that Ecuador was in crisis in the year 2000. Like it was economically a disaster. Um, for one U.S. dollar, for every one U.S. dollar, there were 25,000 Ecuadorian sucres. So the sucre was the currency in Ecuador. So you went to buy a gallon of milk. It was like 140,000, you know, sucres or whatever. So you had to know calculus to do grocery shopping. And, and so, you know, it was, uh, there was military police everywhere throughout the city of Quito. For the first uh, time, I had an AK-47 pointed right here at my chest. Um, uh, I said first time is the only, the only time, the only, some of you are like, this guy's hardcore. No, no, the only time. And I had a, a, a AK-47 because I walked too close to a bank. And there were the run on the banks, right? And they were trying to prevent this. And so uh, and it's a good way, that's a good way to prevent a run on the bank. AK-47s will do that. And so I, uh, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a horrible time. Uh, in, in Ecuador, right? So uh, Giovanna's parents were really gracious to us. They, um, they toured me around the city. One day they showed me around Quito. After we were done, we came back home. And as we drove up to their house, it was very clear that they had been broken into. Uh, there was a neighbor standing there. He had like this ominous look on his face. The door was beaten in. And uh, I, everyone knew what had happened, right? So. Uh, Luis, my father-in-law, gets out of the car. He runs inside to see what the damage was, and they had taken a lot, almost everything. But I immediately go into Western white man mode. Like, I, <laughs> I'm like, nobody touch anything. Like, you know, fingerprints. And when the cops come, they're going to want to dust for fingerprints, you know? And, and I was like, somebody called 911. And I was like, when the police come, you want to keep a copy of that police report for your homeowner's insurance policy. And, you know, I was just kind of being that guy. And some time went by, nothing happened. And I asked Giovanna, I was like, where are the cops? It had been like an hour. And Giovanna was like, the cops ain't coming. And I, I said, why, why aren't the cops coming? And she said, nobody called them. And my white man alarms are just going off. Like, what is going on here? Somebody call the police. And I was like, why did no one call the cops? And she said, because they're the ones who did it. I didn't know this, but the neighbor had witnessed men coming in a police vehicle and piling out of a police vehicle and loading that police vehicle up and riding off. And no one was surprised by this. This was the norm. Now, my initial response was, I've seen this Law & Order episode. And what we need to do, we need to go down to the station and talk to internal affairs. We need to work this out. Uh, I just, I didn't realize how naive I was being because I lived and grew up in a bubble where something happens, you call the cops. You can expect some form of 
justice, some remedy is expected. Some penalty is owed, right? And that's what we expect. But there are places in the world where you don't call the cops. There's places in the world where the cops do the stuff. There's places in Houston where people feel like they can't call the cops, if we're honest. There's, there's you know, the majority of the world today where uh, that's the reality. You know what I'm saying? So uh, 911 doesn't work. There's no homeowner's insurance to file a claim for for the majority of the world. There's no uh, justice. There's no remedy, no recompense. So you just have to deal with it. You just cry for a while and then you start rebuilding. That's reality for most of the world today. We're lucky. We're privileged. We're blessed. Whatever you want to call it, we're that. Most of us. All of us, probably. Now, the world today is what it is, but 3,000 years ago, when Joshua and his boys are marching away from slavery, wielding slingshots and stones and going up against fully armed armies and their garrisons in Canaan, the world was a much less friendly place. And that's the reality in the Old Testament books like Joshua and Judges. In the days of Joshua, the world was like this savage, barbaric world, barbaric to the extent that most of us could not even fathom or imagine. You know, we, I feel like, I feel like when we read that earlier, when Leave No Survivors, and we heard that they went from city to city and left no survivors, I feel like we hear city and we think like sugar land. Or like, you know, he went to the woodlands and left no survivors. You know, like, that's not, that's not, that's not reality. Things that were happening in Canaan were completely different. They were almost all military-type uh, garrisons. They were uh, tribal uh, kinds of gangs, and they were uh, barbaric. To give you a little bit of context, a few hundred years before Joshua marched into Canaan, uh, and for that two or 300-year period, that area had been owned and ruled by Egypt, by the pharaohs. So the pharaohs ruled with an iron fist. I mean, they were ruthless. They were brutal. Um, they completely destroyed any and all local economies in Canaan. They made all the growers stop growing what they grew. And they forced everyone in the region for 300 years to grow this certain kind of grape that the elites in Egypt loved and could only be grown in Canaan. And so everything else was put to a halt and they just had to grow this grape. And that whole time, Pharaoh would just rule with this brutality. I mean, there's all kinds of inscriptions and art of him holding people by the hair and with an axe in the other hand, preparing to uh, behead these victims, right? And no one was surprised by this. This was normal behavior for, for a Pharaoh. But this is what, this is what happens. Uh, this is what happened next. Egypt was driven out of the region and there was this like vacuum in that, in that culture, in that region. There was no economy. And do you know what happens to people, especially to young men, whenever there's nothing for them to do, whenever there's no hope, whenever there's no economy, whenever there's no jobs? We've seen it in our own lifetime in certain parts of the world. They form tribes, they form gangs, they organize under the leadership of some warlords, and then they roam the countryside looking for men to rob and women to rape and people to tyrannize. That's just, that's just what happens. That's how humans behave under certain uh, circumstances. And that's what was happening in Canaan. 
These gangs, man, they were known for their brutality. They were known for their practices. We have inscriptions, historical records of these warlords bragging about boring through the bodies of their prisoners of war and, and partying and dancing on their entrails and on rivers of innocent blood. We have records of them seizing hundreds of women and, ch and children to be their own personal slaves. We have records of them learning to flay the skin off of a live uh, victim while others watch. And sometimes, as the histor historical record shows, sometimes the Israelites themselves were the victims of such barbaric brutality, like in the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. This was the 6th century, 6th and 7th century BC. And this is what happened. I mean, um, uh, in 2 Kings 25, they, being the Babylonian leaders, killed the sons of king, this is the Israelite king, King Zedekiah, before his eyes. They put out his eyes after that. So they behead his sons in front of him, and then they gouge his eyes out so that that's the last thing he ever saw. And then they take him off to be a prisoner, to be a slave, to be in exile in a foreign land like Babylon, right? This was real life. This stuff truly happened all the time in that region. And so here's my issue, getting back to the question of violence in the Bible. Whenever I hear people like me, people like us, sitting in our air-conditioned rooms, holding our personal copies of leather-bound Bibles with our bellies full of hot coffee and fresh donuts, whenever I hear us sitting around talking about all that horrible violence in the Bible, it kind of rubs me the wrong way sometimes, sometimes. Like, I, I understand the questions, but sometimes the chronological snobbery, the arrogance that we have to project our own values and expectations of justice on a different culture and a different world, it's a little much for me sometimes. Sometimes I hear in our voices, Marcion's voice, speaking from the grave. I mean, like him, we're rich if we're honest. Historically, globally speaking, we are the 1%, right? We're rich, we're powerful, we're privileged. We've been given so much as citizens of the world's only superpower, just like Marcion. And in my experience, I'll just break it down and be honest here. In my experience, the only people for whom Old Testament violence is a deal breaker tends to be people like us who live in the lap of luxury and have been benefiting from the perks of privilege our whole lives. Privilege is not a sinful thing. If you've been born into privilege, I'm not trying to shame you, I have too. What I'm saying is that privilege comes with some responsibility. It should come with some humility especially when considering questions like this, because really the only people I hear complaining about God taking out bad guys, taking out thugs, taking out corrupt kings in the Old Testament are those of us who can always call 911 and expect judgment to be rendered on our behalf. Our reality is not the reality of most people in most places and at most times. Here are the two false assumptions we make when we give in to Marcionism, Marcionistic thought. First is the assumption that the Old Testament God is always violent. He's just a brutal, 
Just one, another warlord, you know? Just another tribal dictator. Bloodthirsty, whatever. And then the record just doesn't hold up, right? So if you actually read the Old Testament for yourself, you see the instances of violence when they do occur, and they are rare, when they do occur are a means to this greater end. If anything, they result in greater peace. They result in greater prosperity for more people. They, they, are, they are going someplace, and yet they are so rare. More often than not, what you find in the Old Testament is God casting a vision for what's coming, a vision of hope, a vision of peace, a vision of nonviolent coexistence with people who aren't like us. My favorite example of that is from Isaiah 61, where through the prophet Isaiah, God cast this vision for what's coming. And it's a beautiful vision of the lion laying down with the lamb, you know, all these great images of a child playing with a snake and not getting hurt and all these wonderful ideas of what is to come. The hope that's on the way. And that's the stuff that all of us can get excited about. But here's the problem for us as comfortable, relatively elite kinds of people is that our God does not dwell in the theoretical realm of utopian society. Our God doesn't settle for theories. Our God left all of that utopian ideals ideal and came down to the mess we created. He came down to the grit and the grime of everyday life, our life, but especially the people that have it worse than us. He entered the fray willingly. He came down and and struggled with the things we struggle with. He came down for a time and put his pants on one leg at a time. He came down and in the morning he wondered, how am I going to get through this day? I've got more meetings. I can't do more meetings. You know, he came down he came down and, and he, he, he endured holiday meals with his extended family. Like he came down and, and he stood in line at the DMV or whatever they had for their camel registration, whatever. Like he came down and he experienced the grit and grime of real life. He came down and he wept with two women who mourned their dead brother. He came down. And, and he, he empathized with a father whose daughter was breathing her last breaths on her deathbed. He came down and he hated our suffering. He despised death. He abhorred our sin and he refused to take it lying down. Which gets me to the second false assumption we make when we give in to Marcionism. It's that Jesus of Nazareth was never violent. The God of the Old Testament was always violent. Jesus of Nazareth never violent. Y'all know how we've portrayed Jesus in art and movies. He's the wimpiest looking British dude I've ever seen. He's got glassy blue eyes and pouty lips. He looks like, it looks like you know, Ryan Gosling didn't eat for six months or something. Like he, he's like... He's like, he's so soft and sweet and doesn't add up with the gospel version of Jesus. That's not who he was, right? Jesus had a penchant for aggression. Even the stuff we think is him being a pacifist. He's really saying, stand up for yourself and don't give in. My, everybody's favorite, you know, version or, or, or verse of of Jesus' aggressive tendencies is when he goes into the temple, right? Everybody knows that story. Not this one yet, Julie. But the story when he goes into the temple and, and he, 
he, uh, he, he turns the tables over, right? He just, and, and, he, and in John's version, he makes a whip by hand. And then he chases after grown men in the temple and he whips their behinds. <laughs> which is a fantastic image of Jesus of Nazareth whipping the behinds of grown men. You know, uh, I almost made a Fifty Shades joke there, but I'm not going to do it. Just like whipping dudes, right? Like, just get out of here. And what? why? Why? Because of the system they set up. The sacrificial system, which let rich people benefit and kept poor people out. If you couldn't go in and afford to buy something to sacrifice, you didn't get redeemed. And Jesus was livid. He was not having it. And that's what sent him over the edge. You know, I think sometimes we look at passages like that and we go, man, Jesus must have been having a bad day. It's so out of character. Was there no coffee? Like, what's wrong with Jesus? So it's not out of character, it's who he was. It wasn't the only instance of his being aggressive either. One of my favorites that no one really pays attention to is the one we all tell our kids, you know, about in Vacation Bible School, where he, he brings a child, welcomes him in, uh, into uh, his lap or into his midst, you know, and he places the child among them and he says, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever becomes like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Stick here for just a second. So this part is the part everybody knows. So nice that Jesus, he could teach Sunday school and, you know, it's just be really sweet and kind. The very next verse takes a little darker turn. Let's read that together. But if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus of Nazareth going full Capone on these dudes. <laughs> that stand in the way of his children coming to his kingdom. This is Jesus, man, and he's, he means it. He's serious here because there are things that upset him to the point of aggression, right? And so uh, I, I want to be very clear when I say that I believe God is essentially peaceful. I believe his vision is essentially nonviolent. I believe that we will see that peaceable kingdom Isaiah spoke of one day. I believe that is the completion and the fullness of God's will for the world one day. And I do believe that. And I believe it because I think God hates violence. But for today, I think there are things God hates more than violence. And I think God hates being separated from his children more. And I think... God hates that even more when it's religious guys like me or political leaders or people endowed with social power who stand in the way of his children knowing him and exclude people purposefully to keep, you know, the weirdos out or, or whoever we don't like out. And I think he hates that. Uh, uh, he, he hates that, especially when it's his most vulnerable children. People that have no defense, people that have nowhere to turn when things go wrong, people that have no 911 to call, people that have no remedy, no recourse, no recompense. I believe that it breaks Jesus' heart to such an extent that his heart burns with anger, with, with vengeance. When the vulnerable, the most vulnerable in the world are put at risk. Now look, 
It's easy for us to sit here and say, how could God be so violent? But you wouldn't say that to the mother of one of the girls taken by Boko Haram in Nigeria, would you? You wouldn't say, how dare you expect or hope for God's vengeance and God's justice if you don't think this mother and the hundreds of others like her are praying for God's justice to come to the men that took their baby girls away from their school and made them slaves. If you don't think that people who have it worse than us pray, and rightly so, for God's anger to rain down on their enemies, then we're missing something. We're living too far inside the bubble. And if, if, if that's you, if you can just cannot fathom a God who will uh, uh, be capable of violence on behalf of the poor and the powerless, I don't mean any offense when I tell you that you might be taking a, a pink blankie to a soup kitchen full of hungry people. You might be sitting in Marcion's place oblivious to the real suffering, real people survive every day. Guys, being a Christian isn't about never being angry. It's about being angry about the right things. Following Jesus today isn't about never fighting back. It's about how you fight and who you fight. And on whose behalf, that matters more. Jesus doesn't call anyone to complacency. He doesn't call anyone to passivity. Because God's heart still burns with anger against those who ignore the poor and powerless. God's heart, I believe, still burns with anger when raving gangs of thugs like ISIS go from village to village and, and party and dance in innocent blood. I still think God's heart burns with anger when every other building along West Alabama becomes a Thai massage parlor and nobody does anything or says anything or laments it at all. When women and children are doing things no one should ever be expected to do. I believe God's heart still burns with anger. When little kids are raised in places like the hole in the Dominican Republic where sewage water runs. And it's okay to be angry. It would be wrong not to be angry. It would be wrong of us to do nothing. It would be wrong of us to not enter the fray and fight back somehow. I want to ask you a very simple question. This is no, no guilt, no shame here, but can you think of one way your life today reflects this part of God's character? Can you think of one person who's defenseless, that you defend. A group of people that have no protection, that you use your power and privilege to protect. Some of you can say yes to that, and I applaud you, and I thank God for you, but most of us probably struggle to answer that question. I want to tell you, God has placed you in this time and place and endowed you with the kinds of privilege and resources he's given you for the purpose of you entering the fray, defending the defenseless, protecting those who have no one to look to and no one to call when things go wrong. 
And it might seem like this out there somewhere ethereal thing, like what does he want me to do? I'm telling you, there's no more room for excuses, guys. I mean, you're already just a part of a church that's doing stuff and needs more people to do stuff to fight back, to fight the real spiritual enemies that we face and to affect change for good. I'm telling you, every one of us in this room today, every one of you has already been given a weapon with which to fight this war. Some of you, it's some free time you have. Some of you, it's your connections. For others, it's your money. For others, it's your voice and your passion and things that set your heart on fire. My challenge to you is to not back down. To not be a complacent Christian. There's no such thing. To stop giving excuses and to wake up in the morning intent on doing passive things less, watching TV less, caring less about whatever celebrity or whatever social media platform you follow and and caring more about the things that trouble the heart of God. There's much to be done. God has given us in this room the resources to do something about it. What a privilege that is. I'm praying right now that the Holy Spirit is putting on your mind, on your heart right now, one person or one group of people or one cause that you have known for a while you're called to defend. Right now. And as that name or that issue comes into your mind, I'm praying that you have the courage to put down, lay aside your excuses, to finally say yes to God's challenge to be a defender of the defenseless. And I'm praying that we become that kind of church as well. Would you pray with me?